John chapter 1. J.I. Packer, in the Christian classic, Knowing God, writes, The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies in the Christian message of the Incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative of the human race, and that He took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as He was human. Let's begin with John chapter 1 and verse 14. This is a statement that, like the widow's jar, never stops giving. It really ought to be an eternal source of theological interest for us. Back in John 1, John had descri- verse 1, John had described Jesus as the Word. But now in verse 14, he writes, And the Word, the Logos, became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus of Nazareth was nothing less than the revelation of the glory, the presence of God on planet earth. Moses was placed into the cleft of the rock, and he witnessed merely the afterglow of God's fearsome presence. Moses could not enter into the tabernacle when God's Shekinah glory devoured that sacred space. Likewise, Solomon could not enter into the temple when God's glory descended into the Holy of Holies. Isaiah saw merely the border of God's robe filling the temple, even while God's presence just rumbled to the foundations of the planet. Unnerved, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. And that Old Testament background surely makes John's statement all the more marvelous. John says the Logos tabernacled among us. We have seen the very glory of God. Touch the hem of Mount Sinai and die. Touch the hem of His garment and live. Who could have conceived of the incarnation of God? It's only because we have an impoverished view of God that we think it's so simple. Heaven's bright angels, we are told in Ephesians, did not comprehend the incarnation until they saw it. And suddenly they lit up the skies over Bethlehem with their triumphant anthem. Think of it, the glory of God that ignited billions of stars out there in all those galaxies. All that light, all that fire, all that glory poured into the womb of a virgin. The sinful virgin was not consumed in an instant. It's a mystery surely as great as any in the entire universe. The incarnation is a mystery too large to be seen and too small to be understood. 
Now, in two previous sermons, we have accomplished a couple things. First of all, we situated John chapter 1 and verse 14 in historical context. And secondly, we explored last week two truths of the Incarnation. We consider the Incarnation as the ultimate revelation of God. And we discovered how the Incarnation restores the image of God in man. And I actually wrote a third sermon just on John chapter 1 and verse 14. Because last week I thought, you know, we probably need to press on and not get too bogged down, so I'm going to save that message for Christmas. Today what I want to do is just press on with the text and really give our attention ultimately to the final topic that John addresses in his prologue. So let's read from verse 14 down to the end of the prologue in verse 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because... He was before me, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Look at these words, he has made him known. John's prologue really does indeed drive us to that final clause. He, that is Jesus, has made Him, that's the Father, known. We know God through the Incarnation. The 16th century theologian and reformer John Calvin wrote in his Institutes of the Christian Religion that ultimately there are two kinds of knowledge Two basic kinds of knowledge that are available to all human beings. Number one, knowledge of God. And number two, knowledge of ourselves. To put that another way, knowledge of the Creator and knowledge of the creation. Think of that. What else can be known? Those are the only two things that can be known. And Calvin then argues that you cannot know the Creator without knowing the creation, and likewise, you cannot know the creation without knowing the Creator. They mutually explain each other. You cannot separate the two without devastating consequences. Now, Jesus Himself in His incarnation is the intersection between those two kinds of knowledge. Jesus is the Creator, and Jesus also entered the creation. Jesus became what He made. It's no wonder that John Nevin, a 19th century theologian, wrote, the Incarnation is the key that unlocks a sense of all God's revelations. It is the key that unlocks a sense of all God's works and brings to light the true meaning of the universe. That is not an overstatement. If you want to understand God, then study Jesus in His humanity. And if you want to understand humanity, study the Creator through Jesus. Jesus heals our broken 
knowledge of God. And this truth is often overlooked by Christians. In our fallenness, we no longer think correctly about God. We accept distorted and twisted ideas about God that just fester in our brains and turn us towards idolatry. So God mercifully accommodates Himself to us, to our human condition, so that we can understand Him correctly. And this really is just a major theme that runs right through John's Gospel. You want to know God? Know Jesus in His humanity. Let's also just briefly recall two texts that we saw in Matthew's Gospel. Twice in Matthew, we heard a voice from heaven. In the Old Testament, God's voice was ubiquitous. It was just always there. God spoke to prophets, priests, and kings, to Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, and a host of others. But in the New Testament, that voice of God that came ringing out of the heavens in the Old Testament suddenly grows silent. At Jesus' baptism, we heard the voice, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, followed by silence. And we heard the voice only once more in Matthew, at the transfiguration, and it gave precisely the same message with a slight addendum. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to Him, and then silence. Matthew's point is, Yahweh has nothing to add, nothing to subtract from the voice of Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Now, in a different way, John is going to make the same point. Let's explore four reasons today that we should actually listen to the voice of God through the voice of Jesus. And again, that is the emphasis of verse 18, final clause. He has made him known. The first reason comes at the end of verse 14. John says, we have seen the glory of God in Jesus. And it is full of grace and truth. The expression, full of grace and truth, modifies glory. And glory, in this instance, is virtually synonymous with God's presence. God's presence, God's glory, they're often used interchangeably. We have indeed embraced the very presence of God in Jesus And that presence is full, brimming over, overflowing with God's wonderful grace and God's wonderful truth. When Moses caught just a glimpse of God's glory just passing before him like a cloud, Moses exclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Well, that statement certainly describes the fullness of the presence of God. Fullness just brings superabounding tidal waves of grace that just roll over guilty sinners. 
multitudes of sins are just washed away. And God looks on us with love and with faithfulness. Now Moses saw the fullness of God obscured in a cloud. But Yahweh's fullness has now descended to dwell in a body. The fullness of God. And that's not all. The fullness of God's truth poured from the lips of the Nazarene. And that's why God can say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When Jesus speaks, think of it, God needs say no more. God has nothing to add, subtract, or clarify. God God never clarifies a word of Jesus' sermon. You ever notice that? Well, let me just, just let me add one little piece here. Let me add in my two cents. We all do that to each other, right? God never does that with Jesus. God never interrupts with, can I clarify that point? Not at all. Listen to Him. He is full, full of God's truth, full of grace and, and truth. They are both embodied in Jesus. That's verse 14. Now, the second reason we should listen to the voice of God in the incarnation of Jesus is found in verse 15. And here John tells of John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus. John says, John, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Essentially, John tells us, this is the man you need to listen to. Now look back at verses 6 and 7. We already read of John's witness, but there it's rather abstract. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Well, John came to tell of the pre-existent light coming into the dark world. But where is that light found? Well, in verse 15, we learn precisely to whom John was a witness. John says, this was he pointing to Jesus, the flesh and blood incarnation of the Word. This person is the light coming into the world. And notice what else John says in verse 15. John says that Jesus ranks before me because He was before me. Now in the Gospels, Jesus entered His public ministry after John the Baptist. Chronologically, John the Baptist's ministry came first. We know that. Jesus was also born after John the Baptist. And in Jewish society, age conveyed honor. Even among twins, like Jacob and Esau, the Jews customarily elevated the son who emerged first from the womb. And that's why Jacob had to supplant his brother. Age conveys honor. But John insists, Jesus did indeed come before me. Well, how was that possible? 
precisely because Jesus pre-existed John. This is a not-so-subtle reference to the deity of Jesus. Jesus pre-existed his incarnation. And John knew to whom his whole ministry pointed, to none other than the pre-existent God who came in human flesh. So, friends, listen to the voice of John when John points you to the voice of God speaking in human flesh. That's your second reason. The third reason we should embrace God in the incarnation of Jesus is found in the expression in verse 16, grace upon grace. And what does that mean? Well, commentators have wrestled to some degree with this phrase. The word upon is the Greek word anti, and it has been variously translated. Grace corresponding to grace, grace in return for grace, grace in addition to grace. These are all possible interpretations, but they do involve the translator making the statement perhaps read a little more easily. Anti actually means instead of. Grace instead of grace. Now, when you and I use the word instead of, we usually imply a substitution of something different. We use sweetener instead of sugar in our coffee. We go on vacation to the beach instead of the mountains. But in Greek, the word anti does not require a substitution. It can actually mean more of. It can refer to a fresh supply of, in addition to, more of. With Jesus, we have received a whole new infusion, a new supply, more of grace. A superabundance of grace, new grace. A whole new outpouring of grace from a God that is full of grace. I should say, who is full of grace? Now, this interpretation is really quite critical for understanding the relationship between verses 16 and 17. You want to come out right on this. People often, often abuse verse 17. You don't want to do that. Verse 17 actually clarifies the statement at the end of verse 16, grace upon grace. What is grace upon grace? Don't read verse 17 as a contrast, sweetener instead of sugar, right? Read it as a new infusion, more grace. So verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now when you read it that way, then yes, indeed, the law of Moses was was what? Grace. The law of Moses was grace. And instead of grace, we get a whole new infusion of grace. We get a whole bunch more grace. That's actually what John is saying. Now, our tendency is to contrast law and grace. Instead of law in Moses, we get grace through Jesus. But friends, that does not actually fit the context of verse 16. It is actually grace upon grace. 
Not grace instead of law. Grace upon grace. And why is this so important? Well, some Christians view the Old Testament as a sort of draconian series of impossible laws given by an impossible God who just thunders off the roof of Sinai. Jesus supposedly came along to answer that impossible God of law by offering Himself as the God of grace. As if they have two different agendas. And since the earliest days of the church, interpreters have suggested a kind of radical dualism between the Old Testament God and the New Testament Jesus. And they have been roundly condemned by the church. But they come to view God, and the Old Testament is kind of this demanding ogre. He's just constantly threatening you with his impossible laws. But Jesus comes along in the New Testament, all meek and mild, and he says, well, forget about all God's law, all you need is grace. Oh, I'm so glad I don't live under the law. Well, Is that really how we're supposed to think about the Old Testament? So it just become kind of a closed book to us, we can move on now to the New Testament? There was a man named Marcion, a very wealthy shipbuilder in Rome. He lived in the second century, and he taught precisely this view. His name was Marcion, and he was condemned as a heretic. This thought really developed into full-blown Gnosticism. In the Gnostic view, you just sort of forget about the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament and focus on Jesus and the God of the New Testament. As if you have two gods with two independent agendas. But let's actually be precise. Jesus was not at odds with Yahweh of the Old Testament. That is actually impossible when you discover who he actually was, as we'll see at the end of the sermon. Nor was Jesus, friends, at odds with God's law. Jesus did not despise detest, long for the day I can be out underneath God's law. That was not his attitude at all. Jesus never viewed the God of the Old Testament as a sort of impossible ogre in the heavens. Jesus respected every one of God's laws, and he kept them meticulously. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That means he kept every one of them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest mark of punctuation will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That was Jesus' attitude toward God's law. All that to say, then, do not read verse 17 as a contrast. That's how we often read it. Don't read it that way. Read it in the context of verse 16. Grace upon grace. Grace and more grace. Grace in the Old Testament and a whole new era of grace in the New Testament. When you read it that way, then verse 17 is actually saying this. The law given through Moses was God's grace. 
God graciously entered into a covenant with the Jews after delivering them from the iron furnace of Egypt. That was grace. God graciously gave the people His laws so they could know Him. And God graciously gave them instructions for a tabernacle so they could worship Him. All of God's revelation of Himself to mankind, friends, is grace. All of it. It's all God's grace. Now, be very careful. I'm not going to pursue this at this point, but I am not saying, and don't anyone misunderstand what I'm saying, I am not saying the Old Testament saints were saved by law-keeping. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what John is saying. Neither the Old nor the New Testament ever teaches that people were saved through works of the law. And we explored that when we were working through Romans. They were not teaching salvation by law or law-keeping in the Old Testament. The fact is, verses 16 and 17 are not dealing with the means of salvation. Rather, they are describing God's gracious revelation. Right? Again, we're not talking about how to be saved in the Old Testament. We're talking about God being very gracious and revealing Himself to us. God graciously revealed Himself to us in the Old Testament. And now, grace upon grace, God reveals Himself to us in Jesus Christ. That's the connection between those verses. Again, God graciously revealed Himself through the law in the Old Testament. So read the Old Testament. And now God reveals Himself through Jesus Christ in the new. It's all God's revelation. So friends, don't adopt a kind of cynical, negative attitude toward Old Testament revelation. That actually is ungodly. And that brings us to verse 18. Verse 18. In verse 18, we have a fourth reason we should listen to the voice of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Look at these magnificent words. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Simultaneously, that statement communicates both God's remarkable hiddenness. Moses was pressed into the cleft of the rock. Reveals God's hiddenness and His abundant revelation. Moses, Isaiah, Solomon, none could go into the tabernacle or temple and look face to face on God. God's glory consumes. Nevertheless, one comes immediately from the Father's side, and he is called here the only God. And he makes God known. So clearly, Jesus has come to reveal the hidden God. And taken together, these four reasons communicate that we can indeed know God by knowing Jesus. That is God's plan for restoring our broken knowledge of Himself through the Incarnation. 
And that brings us then officially to the end of John's prologue. And it's only taken nine sermons. But this prologue really has prepared us for everything that's still to come in John. We are discovering none other than God in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God because, in fact, Jesus is Yahweh. Look again at verse 18. The only God who was in the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God because He is, in fact, Yahweh. And what I want to do now with our remaining time is just project forward momentarily and prepare you for one other way that John introduces us to Jesus as God in human flesh. There's actually several more ways. We'll get to those in due course. But I want to show you just one more very, very curious way today. And if you um, are, are struggling at this point to stay awake, I don't think anybody is. Okay, wake yourself up. We've got, to, we've got to take a little journey now into ancient philosophy. I do this from time to time. And I do this so that you appreciate theology. All right? But this is really, really curious. I want to show you something that just, it, it occurred to me a short time ago when I, I called a, a colleague on the theology faculty who also teaches philosophy and, and talked us through with him. And I saw him two more times and he said, I'm still thinking about that. And a little later he says, I'm still thinking about that. That's just wonderful. All right. Okay, here we go. All right. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. There was a tremendous debate that erupted in early philosophy over the source of all reality. And that debate quickly grew arcane, but let's simplify. Some philosophers argued that the ultimate nature of reality was some material substance, like water, earth, air, fire, or even numbers. In other words, reality could be reduced to a noun, something. Now, around the time of Christ, other philosophers began to wonder whether ultimate reality was not a noun at all, but a verb. Existence, properly understood, is not a thing. It's a state of being. Ever try to define the word is? What is? It's a state of being. Is is, a, is is actually a very small word and a very difficult word to define, yet we use it all the time. What is? Existence is what is. Ultimately, existence, according to these philosophers, does not begin with water, air, earth, or fire, because these require something more fundamental, namely the beingness, the isness of water. What is existence itself? Verbs describe states of existence. Now, again, I know this is all horribly pedantic, but there is a point to all this. Shortly after the time of Christ came a philosopher named Plotinus, and he launched a new school called Neoplatonism. And Plotinus concluded, like Plato, that there must be one great source of everything. If you think about all that exists, you're automatically driven back to the question, well, where does everything come from? How do you account for it? And Plotinus tried to bring the whole debate over whether existence is a noun or a verb to a decisive end by claiming that he had discovered the source of all existence. The source, he said, is 
the one. The one. In Indian culture, the wand is quite similar to Brahman. I suspect it actually may be the same thing. The one is the fully unified source of all things. The one is beingness itself. It's a verb. But what exactly is the one? And the answer is, you can't ask that question. Is that Brahman, brother? <laughs> okay. If you ask that question, you are assuming the one is a noun. For Plotinus, for Plotinus, the one is completely unknowable. You cannot, understand this, predicate or ascribe attributes to the one. The moment you say the one is, when you set about to describe the one, you turn it into a noun, thus you are limiting the one. So how can we know anything about the one? And the answer is, you can't. The one cannot and does not reveal itself. All you can say is what the one is not. This is called negative theology. The one is not water, earth, air, fire, numbers, or anything else. We don't know what it is. Now, are you really confused? Actually, I hope so. Because theology makes sense of bad philosophy. Truly, theology makes sense of bad philosophy. That's why you discover philosophy. That's why you read philosophy so you understand how good your theology is. Right? That's not the only reason. Okay, I'm done with all the noun and verb subject. Whatever. Okay, that background really helps you then to understand the currents of philosophy out in the classical age against which Christianity just shines like a bright light in a dark place. What is the Bible's answer to the question, what is the source of all things? The Bible's answer is God. God. Question, is God a noun or a verb? And the answer is yes. God is existence itself. God does not derive his existence from another. God is the very nature of being. In him we live and move and have our being. There's no beingness apart from God. God is. But God is also a noun. God is a person with personal attributes. And we can say things about God that are true. We can predicate attributes of God because God is a noun. God is both noun and verb. Does anyone know where I'm going with this? Have you ever thought about God's name? This is where I got my theologian friend really interested. God's name is both noun and verb. We were introduced dramatically to God's name, Yahweh, back in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses beholds the spectacle of the burning bush. Moses was commissioned by God to lead the people right up out of slavery. But Moses has a question. 
if I go to the people of Israel and I tell them that the God of your fathers has sent me, what is his name? Like, I don't know your name. Now, God has numerous titles in Scripture, but when you ask God to tell you his name, what does he say? My name, says God, is I am who I am. Or again, I am. That was a sacred name to the Jews, and did you know it's both noun and verb? This was the most sacred name that could possibly be spoken, Yahweh. It was the most sacred sound that could possibly be made, Yahweh. In Middle Eastern culture, names have very deep significance. Oftentimes, a person's whole identity is bound up with his name. In Hebrew, the term name actually comes from the same root from which we get our word fame. Name and fame. In fact, in some cases, they're used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Rahab said, we've heard of the name or the fame of your God, Yahweh. Identifying himself then as I am, God is making a claim, a famous claim to a category of existence that no other being can possibly claim. He is both noun and verb. He is both existence and noun, a verb and noun. The one of Plotinus cannot be known. He cannot be described. It's just like Brahman in Indian culture. But the one is not merely a verb. You cannot say anything about the one. But you can attribute, that is, give attributes to, this is why we talk about God's attributes, to nouns. I am is a noun. It actually functions both ways in Scripture, verb and noun. And so the source, friends, and the ground of all existence can indeed just go right on revealing himself. He can tell you more and more and more and more about himself. God can literally tell you things that are true of himself. Now, I know we're so used to this, but this is really profound against the backdrop of the ancient world. Nobody thought God could do this. But in Scripture, God just keeps on communicating about Himself. This is why the Bible is a very big book. This is why you don't want to throw out the Old Testament, by the way. You've got Old Testament revelation, New Testament revelation. There's a lot that can be known about God. He just goes on revealing personal attributes right through the Old Testament. We call it biblical revelation. And the great I Am, as noun and verb, has now embodied Himself in a person. What better name could there be? Now, If there's any doubt about Jesus' identity as Yahweh, I want to point you to seven statements in John. We won't turn to all these, but you may want to write them down. Unfortunately, the references aren't entirely clear in our English translations, but they're more clear in Greek. Let me give you the references. Seven times, Jesus is going to use a little phrase, I am. The first is in John 4 and verse 26. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman who is looking for a coming Messiah, I am. 
In John 6 and verse 20, Jesus walks on the water and his disciples are terrified. And he claims, I am. Do not be afraid. In John 8, the phrase appears three times. In verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, that I am He, you will die in your sins. And again, every time we see those words, I am, He's saying Yahweh, verb and noun. Or listen to what Jesus says a couple of verses later. The connection between Him and the Father is unmistakable. They did not understand that He had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. You will know Yahweh. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And when Jesus says, I am He, He is claiming the Father's name. When you murder Jesus on the cross, you are murdering Yahweh. And then just a few verses later, Jesus will say in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews at that point knew exactly what he was claiming. And so we read, they picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They know exactly what he's saying. I am Yahweh. Well, kill him. Stone him to death. Jesus literally claimed to be Yahweh who pre-existed Abraham. Then in John 13 and verse 19, Jesus claims God's name yet again in the context of Judas' betrayal. And the final instance is found in John chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. Judas has come together with his band of soldiers and priest to arrest Jesus. And Jesus knows they're coming for him. So Jesus steps forward and he says, Whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And that was a name that spoke forcefully to his human origins. But then Jesus responded, I am. And the text tells us they all went backwards and fell to the ground. I used to read that as a child, and I thought, wow, they're just so surprised that he turned himself in that they just sort of fell over backwards in shock. That's not what's going on here, I don't think. I suspect that for a split second, there must have been just such a radiance of his deity that just came pouring through his mouth when he mentions his name. But this humble carpenter just blasts them all to the ground. This is Yahweh that you have come to arrest. Jesus is Yahweh himself. They are about to arrest the very person who breathed into existence all those billions of galaxies. Yahweh, noun and verb. Now, I hope that was worth it. All right, a little philosophy, a little English thrown in. Okay, I have taken some time with this to really make the point, friends, that to know Jesus is to know the Father. We know God through the incarnation. Friends, if you, if you want to know God the Father, then you must know Jesus Christ. 
Can I say it this way? This, this is not a debatable matter. This is not up for discussion. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. This is the very heart and soul of Christianity. If you do not accept the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, friend, you are not a Christian. You're not. And I invite you today to really just change your mind about Jesus. Don't just talk about God. You have to change your mind about Jesus. And if you've looked at our bulletin, you know that our passion is to bring people to Christ and Christ-likeness. Now, why that passion? It's because we know who Jesus Christ is. We actually know who He is. He's Yahweh. So would you let us help you today? And in conclusion, let me leave you with just one devotional thought. When Yahweh first revealed His name in the burning bush, it was in a context that foreshadowed the ultimate act of deliverance through the incarnation. Yahweh's voice from the burning bush cried out, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Now Jesus told us that the whole Old Testament points straight to Him. Jesus, in His incarnation, is the burning bush. Not a giant oak or a towering cedar, but a scrubby little shrub. Jesus, Yahweh Himself, robed in frail humility. Yet wholly engulfed in the flames of God's wrath and unconsumed. And Jesus, friends, has surely seen our afflictions, just as Yahweh saw the afflictions of his people. Jesus has surely heard our cries, just as Yahweh heard the cries of his people. And surely sin is a brutal taskmaster. In Scripture, Egypt is a picture of sin. And sin has just beaten us down. It's, it leaves us for dead. And I suspect that there are people here today that have come in with a load of sin. Well, Yahweh came down to deliver His people from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. And Jesus has come down to deliver us from the hand of the Egyptians from our sin and to bring us up and to raise us up on high to dwell with Him forever. Now, it is quite possible that we have people in this room that have been sinned against this week. In fact, that's happened. Surely that's happened with this number of people. We live in a world that hates us, despises us, does us harm. You actually may have been harmed even by another Christian this very week. You may have been abused. I have students who have suffered abuse, in some cases horrific, life-altering, scarring abuse. People do indeed sin against us. Well, friends, here is Christ's counsel for you. Take those sins 
that people have perpetrated against you, and I'm not excusing them, take those sins and let the wounds fall on Christ. Yahweh says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver. And Isaiah tells us of Yahweh, of Jesus, that He was wounded for our transgressions. Not His own transgressions. You take the transgressions of other people and you let the wounds fall on Christ. So let your wounds fall on Jesus today because He will not be consumed. And even if you have been wounded by a Christian, just do not let those wounds hinder you from coming to Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ, for the wounds that He bore. We thank You, Lord, that we can take our sin and even the sins of those who have hurt us, who have harmed us, who have done us evil. And we can place those sins on Christ and let the wounds fall there. And I pray, Lord, that nobody here would be incapable of seeing Jesus for who He is because of some sin that somebody else has perpetrated against Him or her. Let Christ be altogether lovely in their sight. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.